Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is James, and we're reading Chapter 14 of Death and Other Origin Stories, Osler's Moon. December 24th, 1973. Christmas Day dawned gray and windy, with snow clinging to the dormitory window panes and frost obscuring the view of the sweeping tundra below. Remus woke slowly to the light tread of bare feet on stone, the remnants of a dream, wild and unencumbered, still lingering in his periphery. He didn't want to wake yet, trying desperately to hold on to the freedom of running through dense underbrush, his body taut and tense and so satisfied as he howled his joy at the moon, such a forbidden fantasy, one his waking self wouldn't allow. Despite this, the strong smell of hazelnut coffee permeated the veil of his dreams, and the grumbling of his stomach pulled him back into his body and away from the dark forest bathed in misty moonlight. Rise and shine, Lupin, came Sirius's voice, far too cheery for such an early hour. What time is it? Remus asked, yawning and stretching, feeling his bones and muscles creak and pop beneath his tight skin, reluctant yet to leave his warm nest of blankets. He winced as the fibers of his sweater pulled free from the drying, crusty wound on his inner elbow. Nearly two weeks since the last moon, and the stubborn gash refused to heal. It's time to get up and eat your toast, Sirius offered, side-eyeing Remus carefully. Throwing the thick duvet from his head, Remus sat up to see Sirius in his customary robe, the sash dragging haphazardly in the dark early morning, carrying a laden tray full of teetering stacks of croissants, a small mountain of assorted cheeses, little jars of various jams, and a bowl of carefully rolled balls of butter. Sirius's hair was not yet brushed, hanging in soft wild curls around his face. His robes had fallen open in his early morning wanderings, revealing one of Remus's t-shirts on back to front and inside out. What's the occasion? Remus asked, gingerly feeling his wound under his sweater as Sirius climbed onto the foot of his bed and placed the tray between them. It's Christmas, obviously, Sirius said proudly, happily. He poured them each a coffee, adding the honey to Remus's, just as he liked it. But you had your Yuletide celebrations already, Remus countered, accepting the warm coffee, watching as Sirius began to butter a croissant. Yes, well, that was me, wasn't it? This is Christmas, and now you can do something nice. And now you can do something nice, like eat this pan au chocolat. And he pushed the pastry towards him. Remus grinned in the way he did when Sirius let slip a bit of French, taking a sip of his coffee and choosing not to tease him for it. He spotted a folded profit beside Sirius and leaned forward to grab it. He settled back into his pillows to peruse the paper and thought balefully to himself how much of a right old man he felt in that moment as he squinted down at the minuscule writing. He hoped Sirius wouldn't comment on the way he clutched at his inner elbow, but he was far too busy smearing butter across an already jam-covered scone. Remus only briefly scanned the front few pages of recipes, gossip columns, and opinion pieces, his eyes pausing on a scathing article, damning Dumbledore. He'd been in discussions since the last decade on securing a constitution of merpeople rights, and his newest white paper had caused quite the uproar. Oi, don't touch the crossword without me, you back-alley stray, Sirius warned around a mouthful of scone. Wouldn't dream of it, Remus assured mildly, pulling open the next page and shaking the creases out of the slightly damp newsprint. 
There was nothing much of interest in today's copy, just a little piece that caught his eye about his dad's department at the Ministry of Magic, the beast being in spirit division. The laws about arresting ghosts were being challenged by a distressed group of people being haunted, though how one would go about containing a ghost was up for heated debate. Some poor old woman, the group's apparent spokesperson, Olive Hornby, was raging in an interview about being stalked by the ghost of an old classmate, and that the ministry was responsible for protecting its magical citizens. That spectral horror has gotten enough revenge and justice to last her several lifetimes, ruined my brother's wedding and all. She's in every family reunion picture going back 30 years, and I'm sick of it. Can't even have a wee at two in the bloody morning without being drenched by an exploding faucet because she come flying out of it, screaming about our school days. I mean, really. All right, Black, Remus said, flipping the paper open to arts and culture, where they were accustomed to passing the hours working a deviously tricky puzzle written by famed wizarding journalist and professional dueler Eli Schwartz. What's a six-letter word for an elf-like creature? They passed several lazy hours drinking cold tea and rebuttering seemingly endless croissants, the absurdity culminating in Sirius standing atop the four-poster, brandishing his blunt knife, adamant that a five-letter word for a muggle device used in battle just had to be a sword, Remus. Remus, par for the course, was doubled over, plaintively trying to explain why that was blatantly incorrect because muggles stopped using swords in battle over 200 years ago. To which Sirius, riled with indignation, was shouting, Well, what would they bloody give up swords for, Remus? They haven't got magic. It was in this moment, just seconds before Remus felt compelled to let Sirius know about the advent of gunpowder, both of them broken with laughter and eyes streaming with mirth, that Claudia appeared at the snow-covered window, clearly having mistaken it for an open archway, startling them both. Remus didn't know how long she'd been there, clutching perilously to the scant ledge, but her sudden shrieking and wild flapping caused them both to jump and Sirius to kick a plate of cheese onto the floor with a great clatter. Oh, for fuck's sakes, Remus said, jumping out of bed, Sirius still cataplexic with laughter on the bed beside him. Wrenching open the window, Claudia flew in gratefully, flinging powdery snow everywhere, down Remus's shirt, into the steaming cup of coffee still clutched in his hand, on his face, all over the floor, and then onto Remus's bed. And Claudia was still flinging the cold powder this way and that when she crash-landed into the French press, spilling it and the hazelnut brew all over Sirius, who yelped in surprise. After a few moments of nearly scalded yet somehow snow-covered chaos, the two of them grabbed their wands and set right the situation, promptly vanishing all sorts of crumbs, a broken plate, and siphoning off the coffee. Remus, having restored relative order to the absolute chaos, sat on his bed and reached for the frantic bird to try and soothe her seemingly irreconcilable agitation. He cooed at the little creature and scratched between fluffy ear tufts while Sirius griped about her unprecedented gracelessness, double and triple checking his coveted Snowdonia mug for chips. Once reassured it had remained unscathed, Sirius joined Remus in praising the unfortunate bird despite her many faults. It was only after they had sat a few moments, appreciating the absolute hilarity of her giant eyes, that Sirius took notice of the discarded package. Ah, the great bastard, Sirius boomed happily as he jumped back off the bed, scooping the package and attached letter from half beneath Peter's bed. As Remus had expected, judging by Sirius's overjoyed reaction. 
The mother hen that he was, James hadn't stopped riding the two of them since he'd left, and he could tell it buoyed Sirius, lifting him out of his distracted melancholy he sank into after his detentions with Professor Shafiq. Sirius read aloud the letter, with much gesticulating and great flair. It was sweet and funny and chronicled James' adventure into a muggle shopping center with his dad and their ride on an escalator. Thrilling stuff, really. Enclosed was a packet of sweets from his family in Madras and a parcel of pastries from his mum, all tied together with dire threats to send a reply post-haste. Sirius summoned a quill and parchment, and together they penned a response including much nonsense and crude humor. They closed it together, Sirius signing his missive with great flourish. I solemnly and dutifully declare I will refrain from mischief-making in your absence. Your brother-in-arms, S.O.B. And Remus, a simple, all devilry has been suspended pending your return, Lupin. After rolling the scroll and securing it to Claudia's leg, Remus walked back to the window, kissing the little owl on the head as he went, before carefully tossing her out and watching her frantically right herself as she flew back off towards wherever James was spending his joyful family holiday. They spent the rest of Christmas Day in quiet enjoyment, held in the softness of firelight and the comfort of the empty common room. Late in the afternoon, Sirius produced his hangdog notebook, filled end-to-end -end with handwritten runic spells, some of which he and Sirius attempted, though poorly, to translate. Well, really, Remus was just there for moral support, as Sirius tried to decipher the complicated spells with as much of the knowledge of runes as he could muster, having only taken the subject for one term. Someone named Shunpike had promised these spells weren't entirely dangerous, and together they did their best to prove that theory wrong. All the while, Remus was regaled with tales of dragons and elemental magic and days filled with sun and flame. It wasn't until near dinner time, as Remus was being pelted by pillows in the common room, courtesy of a rogue jinx that Sirius was trying frantically to remedy, when a particularly well-aimed cushion caught him in the crook of the arm. Remus fell forward onto his knees, teeth bared and hissing in pain, as he clutched the searing gash ripped freshly open. Finite incantatum! Finite incantatum! Sirius yelled several times in an attempt to stop the rogue pillows from pummeling Remus while he was down, before they finally all fell lifeless to the floor. Thanks, Remus said weakly, gingerly letting go of his arm and carefully extricating it from his sweater to assess the damage. Blimey, Lupin, what's happened with your arm, mate? Sirius's voice was concerned and slightly accusatory. Oh, you know, the moon... The motion of those pesky celestial objects, the very architecture of our universe. He mithered, his fingers gently touching the red-hot margins of the wound, watching it as it oozed slightly. Ghastly stuff, that. Sirius crouched beside Remus and reached his hands out to examine the shaking arm for himself. Remus winced again, startled by how warm and considerate Remus's hands were, and braced himself when he watched him draw his wand. The whispered healing charm swept across his skin like a cool breeze, but didn't seem to make much of a difference. He tried again several times, Remus holding very still all the while. I don't know, mate, I think this is beyond us, he said apologetically, finally letting go of his arm. Too bad we can't go back to the hot springs. Not unless we fancy living there for the rest of our days, Remus snorted. Minnie would kill us where we stood if she caught us again, or worse, expel us. Remus didn't say aloud what he was actually thinking. 
memories of the peppery fear that had wrapped his bones when they'd all heard the screech that had ricocheted through the dark. Minerva McGonagall was a force to be reckoned with, yes, but she didn't quite make the wolf cower the way that sound had. You know, maybe we could make something for this. Peter did manage to keep a bit of the fire, Sirius said thoughtfully. No, Remus protested. No more sneaking out. I'll be fine. He retrieved his arm and covered it with his cold hand. Who said anything about sneaking out? Sirius asked with clear offense. I was going to say we should ask Slughorn if we can use a potions room. Mick G can't begrudge us extra learning opportunities, can she? I suppose not, Remus said with narrowed eyes. Come on then, Moons. Let's wrap that arm and head for dinner. He conjured some gauze and a long strip of black fabric, winding around the covered wound. Let me do the talking, though. Can't have you quoting Nietzsche and fouling the mood if anyone happens to mention the inconvenient fact that we all exist. And with that, Remus giving in and smiling fondly at his snickering friend, they headed off to Christmas dinner with a clear purpose and about one-third of a plan. December 26th, 1973. Steam billowed in fragrant clouds above the bubbling cauldron, and Sirius's hair was uncharacteristically frazzled by the humidity of their frantic brewing. Remus did his part by methodically pounding fresh comfrey in his mortar, turning the prickly, fuzzy leaves into a gelatinous green goo. Brewing potions certainly wasn't what Remus expected to be doing the day after Christmas, but he figured he shouldn't complain, as the crook of his arm was now so swollen it was making it hard for him to bend his elbow or lift things without considerable pain. Sirius, brow furrowed and focused, was stirring the satin liquid with a flippant and familiar hand as he paged through the instructions in Slughorn's copy of Kitchen Witchery and Home Remedies, Balms for Basic Cuts, Bruises, and Abrasions of Magical Origin muttering to himself as he went. 50 grams evaporated bubo tuber pus, chopped eel's leather, yes, okay, macerated lavender flower, 32 of those and a spoonful of noon harvested clover honey, got it, the gel of three split aloe leaves harvested in late autumn. Oi, Remus, are you ready with that comfrey? Remus passed the jiggling heap of leaves over to Sirius, who surveyed them with great scrutiny and intensity before deciding it was of good enough quality to add to the gently simmering pool of liquid. The Christmas feast last night had proven fruitful in more ways than one. Between mouthfuls of duck confit and roast asparagus, mounds of mashed potatoes and piles of candied carrots, Sirius charmed Professor Slughorn so thoroughly with his talks of things that went clean over Remus's head that he was only too happy to offer a spare potion room for their extracurricular studying, as Sirius had put it. Slughorn had chuckled genially about some fanciful story Sirius told of a rabbit, a hare, and a golden egg full of hope, and he'd handed him both the keys to the potion room and a second set for the ingredients cupboard by the end of their main course. Over dessert, plum pudding, and rum-soaked cakes, Slughorn had handed over his entire key ring, indicating a small silver one that would open his private stores. Remus did his best not to listen. The only inconvenience in their plan, aside from a stern warning from their head of house that left Remus a little queasy, the rich meal heavy in his belly, was the fact that they were, unfortunately, sharing a potions room with, well, Severus. He's been helping me brew headache potions for Madame Pomfrey for a bit of extra credit, and I'm sure he'd be delighted to share the space with you both. 
Slughorn had boomed, indicating the hunched, awkward form of Snape down at the other end of the table. He's really been such a help, gathering all those ingredients from the grounds, even taking a night to scour the forest edge at my request. Chanterelles really are my favorite at this time of year. Sirius had nearly faltered, looking down the laden Christmas feast to where Severus sat, looking mulish and betrayed, no, fully enraged, rather, ensconced between Professor Sinistra and a sixth-year Slytherin with a terrifyingly dated bowl haircut. But Sirius recovered quickly, pulling smoothly on his winning smile and winking cheekily, particularly chuffed at the idea that he'd be using Snape's hard-won ingredients. A smile he'd brought with him until now, with Snape sitting on the opposite end of the potion room, surrounded by heaps and heaps of freshly picked herbs. They'd been working in a tense and tandem silence, Sirius opening cupboards and helping himself to rare and exotic ingredients left and right. The straw that broke the camel's back seemed to be his relative indifference at spilling half an empty jar of acromantula eggs. Snape let out a huff of aggrieved and disbelieving incredulity that carried across the stone room just as Remus began the task of shredding lemon balm, its pleasant citrusy smell in stark contrast to the dour atmosphere of the potions room. Sirius hurrying back to their bench, tying up his hair into a bun with an errant unicorn tail hair he'd discovered behind the lacewing fly larva. Something to say, Snivellus? Sirius bit out as he reached for the block of beeswax, seeming to have nothing but animosity towards their classmates' existence in their shared space. Nothing to you, Black, Severus said with an attempt at unaffected aloofness that fooled no one. Remus watched as Severus scuttled to the cabinet in Sirius's wake, reorganizing several jars and muttering mutinously, something about running from centaurs, Remus thought he'd said at one point looking near angry tears as he fastidiously attempted to refill the now empty jar that had held the acromantula eggs, which were now scattered across several stacks of dried honeybush. It was several long, tense minutes before Snape returned back to his bench and his overlarge cauldron, shooting glares in their direction every time Sirius seemed to drift closer to the potion stores. But Sirius was far too engrossed in his own brewing process and the twirling of his yew wand as he read and reread the ingredients and instructions to notice. I thought you were helping Slughorn, Remus asked, doing his best to try and steer the atmosphere in the room to something less hostile. What does it look like I'm doing? Severus spat, adjusting the flame beneath his cauldron. I only meant I didn't think you'd be doing all this brewing for him. Seems like a lot of work for a third year, Remus offered, trying to be kind, but the wolf sensing the raising of Sirius's hackles beside him. Well, Slughorn trusts me, and any first year should be able to brew a headache potion, Severus said sniffily, almost proudly, before turning back to his work. He was struggling to open an ancient wax-sealed jar of pickled snails. Remus opened his mouth to respond, but was cut off by Sirius, asking him for the rest of the shredded lemon balm. He handed it to Sirius, who added the leaves pinch by pinch, and together they watched the color of the potion turn from a translucent moss to an opaque seaweedy color. It smelled floral and clean, and as Sirius continued to stir the concoction, it thickened to the consistency of pudding. It's almost done, Sirius said in a low voice, leaning in over the cauldron. Hand me the, you know. Oh, right, said Remus clumsily, as he felt for the little vial in his pocket, labeled with Peter's untidy script. 
Carefully and covertly, he passed it across the table to Sirius, who was shiftily watching Severus, ensuring nothing would be noticed. The only trouble was, they weren't entirely sure how the potion would react to the addition of Osler's fire. It could be minimal, it was a generally safe and basic potion, as Sirius had repeatedly tried to assure him. Or, Sirius had said, after explaining the plan to Remus last night with an air of one trying to quickly gloss over a minor inconvenience that left Remus sputtering after him, there could be a small explosion owing to the concentration of sulfur. It was anybody's guess, really, and now it was too late to turn back. It's not as if they had asked Slughorn either for how on earth would two third years have gotten a hold of Osler's fire in the first place. No, much to Remus's dismay and anxiety, they were flying blind with this one. Sirius looked up at Remus, smiling roguishly. Minimal plan? Probable impending catastrophe? He really was in his element. Together, they pulled safety goggles on over their eyes, to the great confusion of Severus, who likely watched them with wide eyes and a furrowed brow from over his bubbling cauldron. But the two of them were far too engrossed in the moment to have looked up to check. Sirius looked properly like a mad scientist as he uncorked the little vial and carefully tipped it into the thick, bubbling liquid. The effect was immediate. Sulfurous smoke billowed out in thick yellow clouds, causing Severus to shout in surprised concern, his voice quickly disappearing in the dense cloud that consumed the stone room. There was an ominous popping noise, but much to Remus's eternal relief and gratitude, no explosion. How in Salazar's name have you two idiots managed to cock up a basic skin potion? Snape berated them, coughing, trying to clear the smoke with ineffectual flapping of his hands. Don't bother your greasy little head about it, Snape. We're doing just fine over here, Sirius said as well as he could, wheezing through plumes of noxious gas as he was. He stirred precisely 20 grams of grated beeswax into the now aggressively neon yellow potion. Remus watched transfixed as Sirius continued to stir the potion harder and harder, the texture becoming glossy and smooth like caramel. Snape crept over to observe their goings-on with a steady litany of insults and accusations of substandard academic achievement, punctuated by coughing fits. That's not the right color, he declared, accusatory and entirely misinformed, nose about an inch away from the instructions in the book. It says right here it's supposed to be muddy green, not violently chartreuse. What rubbish is this? I said, don't worry about it, Sirius gritted out, whipping the thickening cream ever harder. Remus shrugged his apology at Snape, but he just turned away with his nose in the air, all offense and temper just as bad as Sirius's. When the emollient was finally ready and the sulfurous cloud dissipated, Sirius scooped the concoction carefully into a wide-mouthed jar with a sigh of relief and labeled it Osler's Moon. Remus snorted. Let's see it then, Lupin, he said sternly, indicating his arm. Remus shot a worried look at Severus, who was still watching them with far more interest than he thought was warranted, before shaking his head. Not here, he muttered, eyes downcast and voice soft. He could see Severus leaning towards them, desperate to catch every word. And so, rolling his eyes in Snape's direction, Sirius marched Remus out of the dungeons. Jar of emollient in hand and the remaining contents of the cauldron resolutely vanished. Sirius made sure he left the bench for Snape to clean, chiding Remus's attempt to sweep up the dried herbs and schmears of comfrey goo. See you, Snivellus, Sirius had called from the corridor as they left.
Back in the private sanctuary of the dorms, Remus tossed his sweater aside and allowed Sirius to scoop a measure of intensely yellow balm directly into the center of the angry wound. Immediately, Remus felt relief wash over him, and he was struck by how accustomed he had become to the pain as it slowly eased away. Better? Sirius asked with a smile as he rebandaged his arm. Better. Remus smiled back, pulling his navy cable knit back over his head, marveling at the pleasant warmth spreading through his arm, as if he had just dunked it into the hot pools of the forest, vibrant and glowing with the heat of the earth itself. Absolute relief. December 29th, 1973. Professor Doge was a sweet man, a little waffling and odd, but kind and soft, and Remus thought sometimes that he'd be better suited to the quiet din of a great monastic library than the messy and noisy defense against the dark arts classes of Hogwarts. Remus's detentions with the little wizard had proven a bit peculiar in that it didn't feel much like a detention at all, more like a standing lunch date that he wasn't allowed to skip. A long lunch date that involved a lot of dusting and inventorying of odd creatures and fascinating teaching aids or the practice of defense spells far beyond the third year. Dear boy, please, this one next, right over here, Doge encouraged. Remus had just finished disarticulating, meticulously cleaning, and then rearticulating the barren skeleton of a freshly caught Cornish pixie on a dainty wooden plinth. He'd finally mastered a dastardly evasive little maneuver to unite the 17 carpal bones of the left wrist, employing a tight looping charm and a bit of copper wiring he'd found in the bottom drawer of Doge's desk. Remus righted himself from where he'd been contorted on the floor, needing a proper view of the trapezius and triketrum to get the spell perfectly right, reaching up to delicately replace the macabre oddity on its shelf, satisfied completely with his work. He stretched his arm out, grateful for the liberal applications of Osler's moon that eased the ache in his bones and softened the stiffness of his scars, allowing him the mobility and stamina he needed for the tedious tasks of detention with his defense professor. Turning towards Doge's faded mutterings, he picked his way across the cluttered office, his oversized Oxfords a hazard between towering stacks of books and assorted bell jars. Narrowly avoiding what looked like a paper wasp nest, which was buzzing ominously now that he thought more carefully about it, he stepped over to where Doge was extricating a great jar from the corner of a forgotten table, covered in stacks of old journals. Obscured with dust, the jar seemed to emit a faint melody, like that of a toy music box, soft and light. Doge wandered off to another shelf, his faded purple robe swishing behind him, the light catching the silver embroidery, leaving Remus to the laborious task of removing what felt like 30 years of neglect from the magically sealed glass, the charm work of which he could feel peppering the heels of his hands and the tips of his fingers as he ran them along the dusty surface. Beneath the layers of grime, Remus could see the magical replica of a miniature three-headed dog, snoozing pleasantly together on their shared paws. Tapping the glass gently with his fingernail, one of the beast's head lazily lifted a single eyelid, surveying the cause of its disturbance. Seeming to think that Remus was of no threat or interest, the dog closed its eyes and resumed snoring, the tinkling music lulling it back into a state of perpetual slumber. The wolf, deep within his chest, grumbled discontentedly, feeling a certain ache for the trapped dog that Remus didn't really want to think about. 
He finished cleaning the jar until it was spotless, taking a moment to watch the sleeping dog with a pang of grief before reluctantly rising, knees popping, and moving over to a set of old, grubby-framed photographs Doge had set out for Remus to clean. He let his mind wander as he began wiping the glass and burnishing the frames of dozens of well-loved photos, many of which were of a young Doge on his adventures around the world. The younger Doge had long blonde hair and striking green eyes, and barely resembled the dotty old professor with short fuzzy hair that hummed tunelessly and intermittently broke into song. Lifting a wooden frame photo, he saw Doge waving enthusiastically in a long white robe before the pyramids, his hair tucked back in a straight plait, standing beside a handsomely bearded man in an embroidered robe, waving with a more subdued, relaxed enthusiasm. The man's cool nonchalance put Remus in mind of Sirius, and he grinned to himself. He wondered absently why none of them had thought to get a hold of a magical camera and take photos together. He'd have to ask Peter about it, his mum having dated a photographer last year. The next one was a painted frame with vining flowers, encasing an image of Doge beside a young woman in an old-fashioned swimsuit both on a beach with palm trees waving lazily as they sipped something out of a coconut. Another was of Doge riding an elephant in a bamboo forest, and the next of him being robbed of his lunch by a troop of baboons before a great flat-topped mountain. Each looping image beneath the dust had captured a particular moment, a single story in what must have been a fascinating life. He cleaned photo after photo of Doge on his youthful and exciting adventures, and the further down the line he went, the more frequent were the appearances of that same handsome man from the pyramids. In each one, his face and disposition held the cool languor and haughtiness that could only come from pure-blood families of notable names. It was something he could see clearly in Sirius, and in some of his other classmates, an unaffected nonchalance and a confident stride. It was in stark contrast to the expressive innocence of the smiling, gesticulating, and altogether graceless doge who reminded Remus of James, the kind of person who wore their feelings on their sleeve that left no room for doubt about how they felt. Doge and the handsome man could be seen together in Vietnam, wearing matching pointy hats, floating down a river, walking the streets of Paris by the Eiffel Tower, and crawling over a snowbank to peer at a pair of polar bears. Remus was just in the middle of thinking about how nice it must be to travel the world with your best mate, wondering if he would ever do the same with James or Sirius or Peter, when he picked up a tiny and tarnished copper frame photo, the minuscule image of yet another of the two men. He froze, clutching the little innocuous picture, his eyes watching the looping image over and over again, his heart pounding in his ears and sweat breaking out across his brow in the most uncomfortable of ways. The two men were standing with their arms around one another's waist, smiling joyfully in some shared secret before turning to each other with soft eyes and leaning in with a gentle press of lips. A scrawling hand had written in tight but looping script by the bottom right corner, Florence, 1903. He couldn't look away from the shy smile on the unknown man's face, the way he blushed and downcast his eyes just before leaning in and allowing himself to be kissed by Doge in such a public place. Remus felt oddly sweaty and a little out of breath, and why was his face so hot? He didn't know how long he'd stood there with the ringing in his ears, staring holes into the image, but when Doge's voice broke the deafening silence, 
Remus started so hard he nearly dropped the picture in his fumbling. Everything all right, Mr. Lupin? He asked, coming closer, his eyes peering kindly down at the photo in Remus's fidgeting fingers. Yes, he squeaked. Everything's fine, Professor. Ah, yes. Doge smiled, his eyes already full of the wrinkles of age, crinkled even further as the fondness of the memory crossed his features. Nostalgia laced his voice, and he took the photo from Remus's fumbling hands, setting it upon the newly cleaned shelf with decided care. Young love, I suppose. It happens to the best of us. Remus didn't know what to say to that pronouncement, because he was still sweating and nauseous, and he suddenly couldn't stand the kind and open look on his professor's face. Doge, unbeknownst to whatever was happening to his student, smiled absently and began humming again, walking away to his desk, swaying to the music of another time and place, lost in his own fond recollections and memories. And Remus was left there to try and focus on the rest of his task, wondering as he went why the image shocked him so much. It's not as if he didn't know some men were like that, but it was something else entirely to see it there in front of him. Someone he knew personally, not some nameless, shameful pariah that people whispered about. Eventually, much to Remus's relief and odd frustration, Doge called Remus away for tea break, and he reluctantly tore his gaze away from the two kissing boys. He spent the rest of his detention highly distracted, as Doge filled Remus in on some of his travels, but never once mentioning this mysterious man that he had kissed so brazenly. Remus's mind spun in endless, pointless circuits. Were Doge and the mysterious men dating? Could men even do that? Could boys date other boys? Did they just kiss? Could they do other things together? Were they just being friendly? Were they still together? If not, then what had happened to the other man? What did Doge mean when he had said young love? Every time his mind went there, he began to sweat and feel sick, twice spilling his tea and once dropping a whole ginger crisp onto the floor, while Doge went on about the Caspian Runin he had met once on his adventures. And Remus tried to pay attention. He really did, but he just couldn't stop thinking about the idea of two friends, two boys, kissing. Surely that wasn't normal, he thought, as his thumb found the scar by his wrist and he picked it, allowing his thoughts to swallow him. Friends didn't kiss like that. Friends don't look at one another with ill-disguised longing. And every time he tried to think of something new, his mind supplied him with a memory or two, framed in a slightly new light. A memory he had of James undressing after practice one night, of how Remus felt flush and warm and awkward and yet intrigued by how toned he was. It was the same uncomfortable flush he felt when he overheard his friends talking about girls and he couldn't figure out the correlation. Another memory of the previous summer at the ice cream parlor, an older boy had walked in, long curly hair in a leather jacket and his arms slung around a girl whose face he couldn't recall. And Remus couldn't help feel a bit clammy thinking about how much he liked the boy's jacket and tight jeans. Or perhaps it wasn't just the outfit. No, Remus didn't want to think about it. He couldn't, that wasn't normal. That was predatory of him, sleeping in a room with three other boys, it was wrong. It was bad enough he was a werewolf amongst decent, normal people. He was already a wolf in sheep's clothing. He couldn't also... No. He wondered frantically if perhaps it was a side effect of being a werewolf and if the horrors of his condition would only deepen with time. He barely registered saying a hasty goodbye to Doge at the end of his detention, just after lunch. He dropped his duster and fled the classroom, racing to get to his dorm, desperate for some normalcy, for comfort.
Racing up the steps to the tower, he was cataloging every girl in their year and trying to list all of the reasons he thought they were pretty to combat any thoughts about other boys before he threw the door open into their room. Crossing the threshold, he tore off his robes and yanked hard at his tie, feeling suffocated and taking deep, gulping breaths. It was at this precise, exact moment that Sirius Orion Black, very unhelpfully but very much in character, walked out of the bathroom, shirtless, of course, clearly having just gotten back from flying if the state of his hair was anything to go by. Remus let out an honest-to-God groan of horror and confusion, heat flooding his face, and Sirius looked at him as if he'd sprouted an extra head. He choked on his tongue with wide eyes and turned around, fleeing the dorm, leaving his robes on the floor in the doorway. Lupin, what the fuck? Sirius's voice echoed after him, but he didn't stop running. He couldn't, or his thoughts and rationality might catch up with him. What was the point of waking me up then? grumbled the fat lady as Remus threw open the portrait hole and tore off running at full speed. He wasn't really sure why he was running or where, but at this point... It was all he felt like he could do without bursting into flames or vomiting all over himself. Ah, yes, what a lovely day for a stroll. Weather's just balmy, isn't it? Sirius's voice was bright and thick with sarcasm as he strode through the snow, following the tracks Remus had made in his flight. He tossed Remus a sweater, his favorite maroon and cable-knit one, to where he sat crouched in the snow at the base of a bow-truckle-infested elm. Remus caught it with numb fingers and clumsily pulled it over his head, trying to conceal the redness of his eyes in the dying light, hoping it wasn't too obvious how much he was shivering. Just trying to clear my head, Remus offered weakly, pathetically, sniffing hard. And, is it cleared, or did you freeze it solid? Remus snorted thickly, shrugging. Sirius sighed heavily, his thick winter cloak trailing loftily in the freshly disturbed snow in his wake as he made his way over to Remus, sliding similarly down the trunk of the great elm, boots kicked out in front of him. He took a moment to pull the soft leather gloves from his fingers, slipping the fur-lined wrists over his palms before handing them to Remus, waving at him irritably or maybe fondly when Remus hesitated before putting them on. Come on, Lupin, you've got not a wisp of insulation on those bones. Here, take the thermos while you're at it. Sirius passed him a piping hot thermos from beneath his great cloak. There we are. Better, isn't it? Sirius, with some suspicious clanking, also pulled two enamel mugs from beneath the rather deep folds of his cloak. He didn't look irritated, really. His cheeks were bright red in the cold, and it made his gray eyes all the more clear, and it really showed when he gave Remus the softest and smallest of crooked grins, his hair falling about his face in soft curls. Remus lifted an eyebrow in question. If there's anything I've learned after all these years, it's that one can't go stomping off in a snit for a bit of a tantrum without a few necessities. He spun open the top of the thermos, giving Remus the enamel mugs to hold while he poured. Remember, in first year, got lost in the forest after my father came by? Learned early, I did. Can't have a winter wander without a few things to carry you through the night. Steam followed the milky, chocolatey liquid that poured forth from the thermos, the air filling with mouth-watering smells. Remus's stomach growled noisily. Sirius smiled and spun the top back on the thermos, taking the darker mug for himself. When you didn't come back after an hour, I figured the cocoa was necessary. You're not wrong, Remus said, wrapping his newly gloved fingers around the warmth of the cup. It smelled like comfort and home and all of the friendliness between them.
I hardly ever am. Sirius was leaning back against the tree, the mug held halfway to his lips. He looked smug, but it wasn't nearly as infuriating now as it normally was. Of course not. Remus welcomed the warmth that seeped into his bones. He had been sitting beneath the chattering boughs of scuttling bow truckles, revisiting and turning over memories in his mind. He had been thinking about his supervisor at the ice cream parlor on the main road he worked at over the summer. How one evening he had come in from the hazy, humid dusk that had been settling along the little lane, laughing with a cut lip. How he had bragged about it to Remus and the older boy he worked with. Worth it to chase off a couple shirtlifters, yeah? He had said. Remus hadn't known how to respond, and he just went back to cleaning the tables as the two boys laughed between themselves. Another memory had resurfaced. One of his own mum who had shielded his eyes and muttered with disgust at the sight of a group of men on the train one night coming back from London. The men were in feather boas and sparkling glasses, crop shirts and wearing lipstick. They'd been joyous and glamorous and entirely unafraid. His mum had gripped his arm unusually hard and nearly dragged him from the train car. Don't know what they're thinking, coming around decent people all dolled up like that. It ain't right. Remus, look away. Come along now. Remus's eyes filled with tears as he stared down into his steaming cocoa and sniffed hard. He didn't know why the memory hurt him so sharply now, suddenly after all this time, but there was something about seeing the kind look in Doge's eyes in that photograph and the sheepish sweetness of the other boy that twisted Remus's insides and made him feel an aching shame at his mom's memory. Go on, Lupin. Sirius settled back against the tree and sipped at his cocoa a small silence accompanying the drift of the sun down below the horizon and the muffled world of the forest under snow. Do you think it's wrong, you know, when... Remus took another sip of the cocoa and shifted uncomfortably, trying to figure out what he wanted to say, what he wanted to ask. When two people, but two people, not a guy and a girl, but maybe a guy and a guy, when they, you know, like each other... Remus could feel his palms sweating in the leather gloves, and he didn't dare look up at Sirius, who hadn't moved and who was letting the quiet forest swallow them both. Remus regretted asking, and he was just considering burying himself alive or walking into the lake with his pockets full of stones when Sirius decided to lend his voice to the stillness. What do you mean wrong? Sirius had turned towards Remus without his realizing, and his brow was furrowed, and his eyes were impossibly gray, and his ungloved hands weren't red from the cold at all, which also seemed impossible. Like, you know, immoral, Remus said, shrugging, hating himself intensely. He turned away again as he answered, trying instead to focus on anything else. But there was nothing, not really, just the growing dark between the birch trees, half buried in snow. Sirius snorted, and Remus whipped his head back around to look at him so quickly he crinked his neck, which then made him spill some of his cocoa. What the fuck would I know about what's immoral, Moons? Sirius brought his hand up to run it through his hair, pushing it back from his face. He waved his wand, and the spilled cocoa vanished, Remus's clothes newly warm and dry. It was unnerving how he could just fix the past like that, one wave, not even while he was concentrating, like he could erase history at his leisure. Remus had so many thoughts at once, he missed half of what Sirius was saying, coming to only in the middle of his next thought. 
Love is what it is, Lupin. You can't make anyone feel any way but the way they feel. No use trying to pretend it's anything otherwise. Sirius was smiling at him in a resigned and hopeless kind of way, but he didn't say anything else, and the quiet returned to the small clearing beneath the singular elm and the sea of birches. You gonna tell me you like boys now, Lupin? Because I won't mind. I don't think any of us would, you know. I can't imagine James liking you any less, and Peter'd probably just write you a personal ads for any young bloke in Hogsmeade who'd be willing to take you on a nice, respectable date at Puttyfoot's. Remus laughed a startled sound. The thought of his friend's kindness, sweet and sharp and still somehow a little painful, and his eyes teared up again, much to his continued horror. I don't know, Sirius. I honestly just don't know. I don't know if we're expected to know much about it, Lupin. We're just kids ourselves, after all. After that, they were quiet, and Sirius didn't ask any more questions about why Remus had run fleeing into the snow, and Remus didn't offer up any more of the hundreds of swirling worries ricocheting around his mind. They finished their cocoa, and at Sirius's behest, they eventually made their way back to the castle, where Remus got under the covers of his maroon duvet and hid there until morning. January 1st, 1974 Remus Lupin was lying in bed, having another small crisis. He was tossing and turning to the snores of Sirius on the other side of the room, who slept peacefully, completely unawares of the churning thoughts and feelings of his friend. He was replaying a conversation over and over again in his mind, turning it over, let it consume him in its confusion. The conversation in question, the one newly responsible for this crisis, and maybe a few more after this, happened early on New Year's Day, Sirius having just convinced Remus to join him in the common room for a game of cards and a bit of a New Year's celebration. Taking advantage of the fact that all of the teachers were having their own New Year's party and that Minnie would be less inclined to keep track of them, Remus had agreed, with only minor trepidation and a solemn promise from Sirius that they'd be in bed shortly after midnight. Though, in retrospect, Remus should know by now that those kinds of promises, from Sirius in particular, solemn or not, were not worth much. Midnight was more of a concept than a specific time to Sirius Black, really. Sprawled out on the carpets before the common room fire, in their slippers and pajamas, Sirius produced a flask from deep within his robes and shoved it into Remus's surprised hands. Happy New Year's, he said around the cigarette he'd fished from his other pocket watching and waiting for the flame of his wand to ignite the end of it. The flask was heavy and cold, and he tried to give it back to Sirius, but the look on his face told him that today was not a day to argue. Instead, he lifted the cool metal to his mouth and took a sip. The fire whiskey was strong and dry and burned all the way down his throat. The wolf quivered with disapproval as Remus failed to repress a shudder. They swapped the flask and the cigarette back and forth for long minutes until Remus finally asked, coughing and sputtering around the nearly finished cigarette, I thought we were playing cards. Sirius barked a laugh, loud and clear and full of endearment. Not one for the fire whiskey? Not particularly, no, Remus said meekly, and Sirius pulled out a pack of old and worn playing cards from his robes. What else are you hiding in there? Remus asked in mild exasperation, to which Sirius only laughed and winked before shuffling the deck of cards. After losing several games of Potioneer's Sevens and listening to all of the reasons Sirius loved to play Quidditch, the fire whiskey and cloves had gotten to Remus's head and he was feeling loose and wobbly. 
At some point during an especially frustrating round, Sirius's iterations of Quidditch turned into glowing praise of Gideon and his capabilities as a beater. For some reason, this nettled Remus, making him feel prickly and inadequate. And while Sirius was trying to explain how they flew like a single entity, with great speed and strength, practically reading each other's mind, Remus's mouth, much to his brain's horror, blurted, Gideon's quite fit. Unfazed, Sirius boomed, well, of course he is, he's a beater. And lifting the sleeve of his satin monogrammed robe, he exposed his own thin, brawny arm, flexing it for dramatic effect, saying, and so am I, look at this, I could knock a troll's head into next week. Remus, in his confused and befuddled state, just stared at Sirius in his stupid arm and let out a weak laugh. Sirius, observing this with a shrewd look, lowered his sleeve to his proper and decent place and asked, What's going on with you anyway? You've been weird the last few days. Did something happen in detention? No, Remus said too quickly, his mind slow and fuzzy, looking anywhere but at Sirius. Sure, said Sirius, watching him closely. Whatever you say. Sirius began to deal another hand, and Remus rubbed the healing scar beneath his sleeve harder than he should, but the booze took the edge off the pain and made him a bit clumsy. It's just that Remus started as Sirius batted his hand away from his elbow. He stopped abruptly, rubbing his face, not knowing how to say what he wanted to say. It's just what? Boys. Are we talking about boys again? Sirius asked with a good effort at repressing a knowing smile picking up his hand and rearranging the cards. Remus had not picked up his hand yet. He was too busy fidgeting, searching for the right words. Do you know any gay people? Remus finally asked, a bit rushed and breathless. Sirius looked up unfazed and glum. I'm sure happy people exist out there somewhere, Remus. What? No, I mean like gay, 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 queer people, or whatever. Oh, Sirius said with a bit of a surprised look on his face. I mean, does it matter? I don't know, Remus said truthfully, his face a flaming phoenix red. Do you? I don't know, he said again, his voice taking on an almost desperate note. Sirius nodded and was quiet for a while, arranging the cards in his hands, his half-burnt cigarette hanging loosely from his mouth. He seemed to be choosing his words. It's a complicated topic in pure-blood families, he offered, carefully. We're taught that to be gay or to have specific proclivities is fine, it's whatever. But if you're an heir to a family name, there are expectations of you regardless. Remus was a bit surprised by that answer. He hadn't considered how the wizarding world viewed gayness. All he knew was that his grand had made a low and disparaging noise once and raved about the sanctity of marriage when he was about seven after a law passed in the muggle world saying it was legal for gay men to cavort in secret. He hadn't really known what she was talking about at the time, but now he was starting to understand quite a lot in hindsight. What kind of expectations? Remus asked, finally picking up his hand and rearranging the cards. He felt weirdly nervous. Sirius huffed thoughtfully before picking up a card from the deck on the table and discarding a two of clubs. Like Walberga always told me, it didn't matter who I wanted to bed, but I also had to carry on the family name and bear her grandchildren. Remus took the two of clubs and discarded a ten of hearts, waiting to hear more to this uncomfortable pronouncement. That's why we have arranged marriages, too, Sirius continued, and why traditions and gatherings and appearances are so important. The politics are complicated. His face was carefully blank, and he discarded an eight of hearts. 
You have arranged marriages? Remus asked, his mind now reeling in many directions. What I'm saying is, Sirius pushed, suddenly bitter, it doesn't matter if someone's gay or not because you don't get to make your own decisions in that world anyway. The room fell quiet, but for the crackling of the fire and the occasional flick of a card. Remus nodded his head without really understanding. Muggles usually care quite a lot if someone's gay. They've made laws about it. He picked up a four of diamonds. I know, Sirius said without looking at him. We're told all about how muggles have killed and maimed their own for being different, for doing things a certain way. It's one of the ways they try and make us afraid. Are you afraid of muggles? It felt like a dangerous question he was asking. He knew how Peter and James felt about muggle rights with their loud declarations, but Sirius always managed to be uncharacteristically quiet during their gallant tirades, choosing rather to aim his energy at hating Severus and his brother's friends, but never at denouncing the bigotry they supported. Sirius shifted uncomfortably as he snubbed out the dying embers of his last cigarette in the crystal ashtray. I'm less afraid of the worst of them than I am of summer holidays with Walburga. Remus considered this as he arranged his cards to accommodate the six of diamonds he picked up. She sounds like a right horror, to be honest. That's a nice way of putting it, Sirius huffed, laying down a full run of four and two sets of three. God damn it, Black, Remus griped as he threw his hand down onto the table, accepting his umpteenth defeat of the evening. Anyway, Sirius continued, gathering the cards for another deal. Why are you so worried about gay people? You're not one of those awful muggle-borns that cares terribly, are you? Don't you remember that gossiping portrait telling us about boys kissing in the halls? It's not that unheard of. Remus felt a fresh flush of some kind of emotion he couldn't identify as he looked up at Sirius. I know, I know. I know what happens. I just... He rubbed his eyes hard. In detention, I saw a picture of Doge when he was younger, kissing another boy. I'd never actually seen it before. I'd never really thought about it. He felt a little nauseous and wished he hadn't drunk so much. His head was beginning to swim a bit. Sirius shrugged. Doge wasn't a sacred 28, so really he could do whatever he wanted. He didn't have any kind of legacy to uphold. Remus couldn't believe that Sirius's only commentary on their teacher being gay was about his status within the wizarding world. So it's okay then that he's gay, that he likes men. Remus asked cautiously. I don't see why not, Lupin. I told you this before, he said with a big stretch and a yawn, seemingly profoundly unconcerned. People like all sorts. It's not really my business. I'm knackered, though. We should call it a night. And off they went, stumbling slightly back to their dorm. Remus laid in his bed in the dark and stillness of the early morning for hours, his head spinning, replaying their conversation over and over again, wondering as he did so why it bothered him so much. Remus floated by in a bit of a fog until the rest of the school returned from the holidays, and even feigned a cold to avoid his detention with Doge. He wanted to say, for once in his life, his transformations were coming in handy, giving him a solid excuse to miss detention, but he couldn't help but notice the rising tide of claustrophobic tension that had crept up on him, gripping him tighter with every moon. James had greeted them with the enthusiasm of a rogue bludger, bowling into Sirius in the middle of the common room, initiating a furious wrestling match in which several people had to jump out of the way. 
Peter, in his usual kindness, had produced a box of chocolate frogs to share with Remus as they settled by the fire and waited for the wrestling match to end. Reading to Peter the accolades of the squib Archimedes, he was distracted by Marlene and Lily stumbling into the common room through the portrait hole, giggling madly and clutching at one another. Evans, James greeted from the floor, where he was red-faced and sweaty with Sirius's torso trapped between his thighs. Lily rolled her eyes so hard they were in danger of falling out of her head, and Remus didn't catch what she said in return as he was far too distracted by Marlene. She looked different. Her hair. It was short. Her curly brown frizz that usually fell messily around her shoulders and held back with a thick headband was cropped close to her head. And did she always wear muggle jeans with loose flannels? Remus realized with an embarrassing flush that she looked nice. He had never noticed before. Hi, Remus. Peter, she greeted shyly, adjusting the cuffs of her sleeves when she noticed him staring. Remus tried to say hello back, but all that came out was a weird rasping noise that Peter mistook for a choking sound and proceeded to thump him on the back with far too much gusto. Wincing and sputtering, his eyes watering, he watched Marlene and Lily laugh to each other and walk off, Marlene casting furtive glances back towards them over her shoulder. You all right, mate? Peter asked, his hand ready to resume smacking. Fine, Peter, thanks, Remus muttered, as Sirius won the upper hand and pushed James' face into the rug with a yell of victory. He was completely bewildered by this new feeling blooming in his chest at the sight of a Marlene with short hair, right beside the one that quickened at the thought of boys kissing, and he couldn't for the life of him figure out what to do with either of them. But perhaps, he thought, it didn't matter much because the four of them were back together and it was high time for getting up to no good. So, welcome to the Forbidden Forest. <laughs> this is chapter 17 discussion. No, 14. Oh, what did I say? 17. Oh, okay, whatever. Just You're jumping that. ahead. <laughs> I'm just having a good day, okay? It's a great day. Um, okay, so that was an adorable chapter you did. However, it wasn't so adorable when it first started. Do you want to give people some insight into what happened with this. I struggled to write this chapter for like two and a half months. Like a solid struggle. Like it wasn't like you were ignoring it. You were trying. I was trying so hard. I was like putting an effort yeah. consistently. And I just hated my life. You did that thing. There's this specific thing that you do where you like panic while mm-hmm. you're writing. And then when I read it, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? None of these sentences make sense. They're, like, super choppy. Mm-hmm. And the vibe you get from them is just, like, it's code red. Everything is code red, except the text itself is very boring. Mm-hmm. So, like, the story itself is, like, super dry, detail-oriented. Mm-hmm. But, like, I'm panicking the whole time, and yeah, I yeah. can't figure out why. It's because I'm, like, ignoring all of my feelings and not wanting to deal with any of it. <laughs> so why don't you explain more about that? What were you ignoring? Oh, and what, man, what was I? <laughs> I was really uncomfortable with writing this, like, queer identity crisis. 
Yes, but it was fascinating to me that you were uncomfortable writing it because you came to me and were like, I'm going to write this thing where Remus... Yeah. ...thing. Totally. And then it was entirely your idea. No, absolutely. I hadn't discussed it at all, and I was like, oh, okay, No, I was in a hell of my own making. Yeah. (laughs) I did this to myself. Why? I feel like how I wrote it really made sense for his character and, like, the kind of character that we're going with, but... For me to identify with it was, like, really hard, actually, because if I was writing it from, like, my own perspective, um, like, I never went through a queer identity crisis, because I was just kind of, like... So, but then why did you decide to write it now? What do you mean? Like, why did... Why was this the thing you went with for this chapter? It just felt right. But you're telling me now it just didn't make sense (laughs) to you. No, it made sense in terms of, like, the plot. I mean, in terms oh. of, like, my own personal relationship with that concept. So, but then why didn't you write it differently? Because when I thought about Remus, that if I were to, like, mirror my own experience growing up, it didn't seem right for his character. Yeah, I think that's fair. Mm. So do you want to talk about what your experience was? My experience was, like, super chill. Um, I recognized from a super young age that, like, the concept of attraction, like, kind of blanketed across all genders for me like Mm. pretty early on um and that I I didn't have the vocabulary for it until I was probably like 12 or 13 um and then when I did Did you feel attraction before 12 or 13 yes I was interesting I I didn't realize what it was well I I don't know how much you can say a six-year-old experiences attraction but I had a, a specific um like fixation on it was actually watching Titanic for the first time when that I was is six so years old. So embarrassing. I know. <laughs> Wait, so Kate Winslet? Yeah, Kate it? Winslet and Leonardo oh. DiCaprio. I just remember just being like, I have feelings and I don't know what they are, but it is equal between them. <laughs> that is fascinating because yeah. I watched that movie and I thought it was the worst fucking thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, I, was I, like, this I is honestly horrible. don't remember when I. I remember when I watched it. I had. I was not focused on the plot at all because I was way too preoccupied with Kate Winslet's wardrobe and outfits. <laughs> I couldn't tell you, time. I couldn't tell you a single thing about that movie other than the fact that she gets naked. I have no idea what she wears. Yeah, I could the- tell. Yeah, I was very, very preoccupied with her the entire fucking movie. Okay. So from there, I was like, something's going on here. <laughs> and then by the time I was like twelve, I had the vocabulary for it, and I was like, oh. <laughs> but like, there. Had where been- did you Where did you encounter the vocabulary for that? Because twelve, um, when you were twelve, I mean, that was a long time ago. That was like mm. what early two thousands. Mm. So like. There wasn't a lot of discussion, or maybe in like my Mm-mm. understanding of the world, there was not a lot of discussion around queer issues when I, when I was in middle school. Yeah. That was like, it wasn't really something I think I had the language for. So where did you find that? We had a super amazingly progressive teacher, and when oh. we did sex ed in our class when we were about 11, there is like, there's nothing about like LGBTQ stuff, but he made a point to make sure to talk about all of that. Oh, that's fascinating. And he gave us really good definitions. And so he was, like, going through and giving definitions and, like, trying really hard to, like, not make it super, like, you know, straight-centric mm-hmm. um, as much as he could for a group of, like, 11- and 12-year-olds. That's um, pretty amazing for early 2000s. That's yeah. not something that was common at that time. Yeah, I was really lucky. The school I went to was, like, small, and we were just lucky to have a good progressive teacher mm. who, like, altered the curriculum. Because it's an abstinence-only curriculum, and he altered it. 
Oh, wow. Specifically. Yeah, because I was going to say. It's so unethical to teach you abstinence only. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, because even in the early 2000s, Mm. um, sex ed itself wasn't like a common thing. I mean, I remember our school was considered like, quote unquote, progressive Mm -hmm. for teaching at like fourth, fifth, sixth grade levels, you know, like really young intro to health and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. But definitely no queer issues discussed. Definitely no discussion of vocabulary Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, like. Yeah. Anything other than very yeah. heteronormative. Well, cuz the I remember specifically the material that we discussed. So when they talked about things like HIV AIDS, they really heavily focused on the gay community, but in such a negative light in the material that we had to cover. Wow, we didn't discuss that at all. Yeah, and so my teacher stepped in and was like, "I have to show you this because it's part of the school district like material that I have to show you, but this is wrong. Like this oh, is wow. incorrect, you know, like you really need to understand that like you know, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. You can't demonize gay people because AIDS exist. <laughs> like, That's so interesting yeah. because like when we talked about SCIs, we didn't ever specifically talk about HIV. Oh, there's like just... a whole like video about HIV specifically. Wow. That's yeah. so interesting. Mm. Cause like, I mean, we obviously talked about like, um, like, uh, they divided them into like treatable and un not like sort of, so treatable and curable versus yeah. not treatable mm. and curable, which is still sort of a stupid division but yeah. i remember that's sort of so like hiv for us was like grouped with herpes oh right right so okay. it, was, it yeah. wasn't seen as like anything special mm. other than the fact that it's like cool you have this for yeah. life um so very very different obviously uh discussion and i wonder if that's because of our proximity to mm-hmm. so much of like the um, like HIV AIDS activism and yeah. movement out of, out of New York city and right. specifically with like Peter Staley and all these mm-hmm. people. Um, so I wonder if that had anything to do with it versus, mm. you know, you being yeah. in a different part of the country and, yeah. um, obviously, yeah, I, I didn't even think of HIV as being associated with like the, you know, gay disease or whatever mm-hmm. until much later. Oh, that's super interesting. And it was like, after the context of like me knowing about HIV in, in mm. a different light. So it sort of became like this historical component yeah. of the story. Oh, that's super fascinating. Yeah. Like, I've realized like since getting older that my experience with sex ed was like very unusual. Like, yeah. I, I, like I, I realized later on that so few people had access to it. Cause then I did, there was another sex ed class we had to take in high school mm-hmm. and it was like a totally different That was game. a different school though. Yeah, right? different school. So like by the time I went to high school, I was in a different school, much bigger. Um, and the, the curriculum there was also abstinence only. So it was a lot of the same material we covered, but without a good teacher framing it, it was a completely different experience. Wow, yeah, it was that's really wild. fascinating. None of our sex ed was abstinence only, which also was quite interesting. Like now that I think about it, it was so different from what most people have mm. probably, you know, um, maybe like less city part mm-hmm. of the U.S. experienced yeah. or, or like different areas of the yeah. U.S. Um, yeah, that's that's wild. Yeah, I mean. Which is nuts that they teach it because the city that I'm from has like one of the highest rates of teen pregnancy in the country. Uh, but that's specifically correlated. Yeah, there no, totally. is there like, is it's just a, fucking nuts. There <laughs> is a specific correlation between teen pregnancy rates mm. and abstinence only yeah. education or lack of sex education. Yeah, yeah. You could say the same thing about the country mm. we live in now. Mm, mm. Um, which that's interestingly so is going through this sort of similar um, issues of wanting to teach sex ed at younger ages mm. and there being huge amounts of 
backlash from uh, traditional community mm. and also religious community. Um, but also we live in a place with huge HIV yeah. rates, which is not related at all to someone's sexual orientation. Definitely. So, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, like, I was really lucky that I had access to the vocabulary at the age that I did. If you hadn't had that, how do you think your experience would have been different? I think I would have been confused for much longer. <laughs> no, <laughs> no kidding, but like... I, I think I would have, like, been very, like, huh... <laughs> For a really long time. So I yeah. wonder, like, there's a lot of people who, without that... Uh, I probably actually thought, would have thought I was gay. Like, just like a lesbian for a long time, rather than being bisexual. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. So you would have said that you were more attracted to women when you were mm. younger. That's interesting also, because did you date women? Not until I was in high school. Yeah. Mm. Why do you think that is? I think statistically, you're more likely to find straight men to date than you are or closeted other queer men. women. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose statistically, yeah. like, and also I think that that time. Yeah, at that time, and also like I wasn't a very forward person, so it was like boys approaching me oh, rather yeah. than they you know do what I mean. That. They yeah. do that. <laughs> to be fair, I approached most. <laughs> I still do. <laughs> Hey, you. (laughs) (laughs) You. Hey. Hey. Come take a seat right over here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm. So so how did you write Remus's experience, like, as it was Mm. different for yours, and why was that so difficult? So I I think I, I wrote him from the perspective of, like, no sex ed, no access to any of the terminology or definitions, and being surrounded by people who, at that time period, I mean, in the 70s, you know, small town conservative, like, mm. you know, Britain, uh, the UK, just like generally being a bit bigoted. Do you think it was more bigoted in the UK than in parts of the US, like where you're from? I honestly don't know, but it was pretty bad. Like it was bad everywhere. It was fucking bad. Yeah. Like, mm. I mean, the thing that I think the other thing that I kind of struggled with is like, I was surrounded by a lot of homophobia from my family um, and, and a lot of people, but I never internalized it. It was mm. just kind of like, I don't give a fuck. You know, like mm. I never took that personally, but I think a lot of people did. And obviously. I know a lot of people who really take that hard and like well, really obviously care what their family thinks, you know, yeah. and I think that that would have been more of Remus's experience. Well, yeah, and I also think it, it distinctly depends on, you know, if you're getting it from not just your family, but from church every Sunday yeah. and all the church families you know mm-hmm. and the sermons people give yeah. and the radio stations you listen Absolutely. to. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, obviously that's a very different sort of overwhelming experience. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that like you sort of didn't internalize that at all. Is that because you think you reject a lot of things that come from your family? Totally. Just sort of generally? Yeah. yeah. I think I rejected so much of what, uh, like, especially like from my dad's side of the family, like I rejected so much of his rhetoric mm. that that just got lumped in with the other shit yeah. that I rejected. Yeah. That makes sense yeah. to be honest. Um, but it is quite, I mean... I don't know, lucky is sort of like mm. a strange word to use, but it is lucky that you mm. didn't necessarily have all of those yeah. factors that increased internalized stigma. And, mm, and you know, you, like even being confused from a young age mm. can affect that as well. That's yeah, what I was totally. asking about, you know, if, if you had the language vocabulary and mm. the reassurance that it was normal from mm. a very young age, like obviously your experience yeah, of it totally. is different. Absolutely. And I really respected that teacher. I mean, he was kind of like a stand-in parent figure for me for many years. Yeah. And so, like, hearing that from him, I think, was yeah. like, cool, that's all the validation I need. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> well, it also just goes to show the impact, and we've talked about this before, that a single teacher yeah. can have on a young person's Absolutely. You know, ideas of themselves, ideas of the world, mm. ideas of the future. Mm. I mean, these are huge things that, at, um, especially when you're a young teenager, they can really shape Absolutely. how your adolescence goes mm. and how you manage through your adolescence. Yeah. Um, I mean, one good teacher can really make the difference. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, okay, so again, with Remus, tell me more. Like, what's his internal process like to you then? Mm, I think this idea... So, one thing that I did identify personally with Remus's struggle is coming to terms with the concept of attraction at all. So, mm-hmm. for me, it wasn't necessarily like, you know, oh, I like girls. It was more just like, I like people at all, and that was a little weird for me. Mm. Um, and I think... That idea of Remus like coming to terms with his like own idea of attraction makes me uncomfortable. Just having to like dissect even, that even at all. Like what is attraction? Yeah, exactly. Like because what is attraction? I feel like the way you wrote Remus, like I don't identify with any of it. Mm. And like I don't even know if I would call that attraction. <laughs> you know, like what what is that <laughs> to him versus someone else? Like yeah. It's a very odd thing to yeah. to discuss because attraction is very much one of those things. Like, you know, how do you mm-hmm. um, describe, like, what you think of as the color blue? Right. You know, like, how do you describe attraction? Mm. So I thought that was interesting. And I, I sort of, like, knowing you, mm. when you wrote it, I was like, okay, this kind of makes sense. But, like, and then when mm. you said now, like, uh, your attraction started from a young age, I was like, I don't really, like, imagine you being attracted to people in the same way that I Mm. think about it. Yeah, yeah. That's why I asked for clarity. Yeah. So, yeah, his attraction starts. Mm. And recognizing the fact that, like, you know, so we've hinted a lot about Mm. uh, the other, like, you know, kids that he's around. Yeah. You know, joking about um, liking someone or, you know, like dating, whatever. yeah. Yeah. And sort of, like, now he's finally like, oh, shit, that's what that's about. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the thing of, like, oh, fuck, <laughs> that's what everyone's on about, shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so how do you how do you think um, that changes things for him in terms of, like, his idea of himself? Um, I think it kind of really, has, like, really making him rethink a lot of experiences that he's had in the mm-hmm. past and kind of, like, framing them in a different light. Like, mm-hmm. like I said, you know, experiencing attraction from a young age, like, I didn't realize I was experiencing attraction until I was older and looking mm-hmm. back and being mm-hmm. like, oh, fuck, that's what that was. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like that, what he's going through now of like, oh, wait, <laughs> this is what other people do. How uncomfortable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now what? Now what? What do I do with it? <laughs> I have feelings. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah, and and like how that kind of fits into his memory of his mom, who like obviously isn't alive anymore, so he can't talk to her about like the horrible things that she may have said about yeah. you know, gay people existing. And that that was such an interesting scene that you wrote. When I read it, I was like, oh, that's so devastating. Because, <laughs> um, like, I also never had that experience mm-hmm. of like being young and and seeing that kind of bias. Um, so like. Reading that, I was like, oh, mm. imagine being a young child and, yeah. and seeing someone, you know, um, be incredibly homophobic mm. or, you know, just ashamed yeah. of someone. And I was like, oh, that's such, an, that's such an ugly mm. thing. And I can't yeah. imagine being a young person, like, shaped by that. And obviously yeah. that would influence someone's internalized mm. homophobia or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a really cool yeah. scene that you wrote. But again, like you said, he can't confront her about it. He can't ask her what she meant. You know, he can't mm. 
he has sort of no answers other than having to identify the fact that his mom was maybe not such an accepting person. Yeah, and, totally. You know, had had faults. Yeah, and that was actually also something I really wanted to look at, this idea of, like, he has nothing but good memories of his mom generally, mm-hmm. even though, like, we've kind of, like, laid the groundwork that she might have been quite an absent parent. Mm-hmm. And, like, him now going through and maybe going through some of his memories and experience and being like, was she as good of a, a parent as, like, my memory you know, or I even have, as good of a person. It was good of a person. Like, do I have rose-colored glasses about her because she's dead? You know, mm-hmm. or yeah, that I can't talk to her anymore. Or just because I was a child. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't have a full understanding of the context. Yeah. I think that's a really common. Exp- I mean, you could say that about your mom as well. Easily. Easily. <laughs> yeah. So that was yeah, very absolutely. interesting. Um, what else happened? Oh, the potions with Snape. Tell, talk more about that. Oh my god. Why did you um, write this? I just, yeah, I really want to keep building this idea that, like, obviously their rivalry with Snape needs to get to a breaking point, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, how do we get there? How do we get to that horrible scene in fifth year? How do mm-hmm. we get to, you know, Sirius sending him down a tunnel to be eaten by Remus mm-hmm. kind of a thing? <laughs> and I feel like... <laughs> I shouldn't laugh at that. <laughs> that instantly, I was like, ha, ha, ha. I'm a horrible person. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so, like, building this idea that, that they're going to keep, um, their animosity is just going to keep growing. Yeah. And this kind of, like, uh, disregard they have for one another and, like, this, like, lack of empathy that they kind of have. Yeah, and at the moment, also, Snape can't even do anything about it because hmm. Sirius is still someone very powerful yeah. within the Slytherin sort of context, yeah. Yeah, even exactly. though he's not in that house. Yeah. And so he's just sort of... Bitter. Been, yeah, and he's just like been made incredibly powerless, yeah. which is a, a place that obviously this sort of animosity will fester. Yeah, absolutely. And grow. And like Remus in the middle kind of being like, I don't really hate Snape, but he's kind of a dick, and I don't know what this is about. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> that's where he stays. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... <clears throat> oh, wait, what other scene happens in this chapter? Um, oh, Doge. Oh, yeah. Okay, but that sort of follows on what you were talking mm-hmm. about. Um, yeah. Why did you decide to... Oh, actually, no, you didn't decide to. I had to remind you halfway through writing this, actually mm-hmm. after you had finished writing yeah. that scene, that Remus had been encountered with the idea of boys yeah. kissing before mm-hmm. in the in first year mm-hmm. when they see a portrait. Um, Gossiping. Yeah, and it's so funny because it was, like, so classically you Mm. to, like, experience something and then, like, not find it jarring and then, like, five years later be, like, totally jarred by it. Yeah, no, And me being like, this is the fifth time this has happened. Why now? And you're like, like, I only noticed now. (laughs) Exactly. It was, like, just so classic. That is, like, so me. Like, so intensely. Yeah, like, you you totally coast through situations unless they are like specifically occurring mm. at you yeah like with decided effort yeah absolutely <sighs> yeah like i can go through like really intense experiences it's just like complete disregard for what's happening around me and then suddenly i go through it like a you know fourth or fifth time and i'm like wait a fucking second this <laughs> was traumatic <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Wait a minute, like. I have thoughts and feelings about this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like... <laughs> Maybe now? I'm just dead inside? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that is. But it, it's funny the way mm. you wrote it then, because it's exactly how yeah. we basically talk yeah. to each other, which mm. was funny. 
And Sirius is like, don't you remember, like, yeah. three years ago this happened? Yeah. And Remus is like, nope, I don't know what I, I don't know what's up. And then in my I, head... I've I'm, never seen it in front of my face before. <laughs> and, then, and then in my head, I'm just thinking about, like, Remus in the background, like, arguing with a portrait. Yeah, like, right. you know, one hallway over, being like, where did they go? Yeah, exactly. Well, Remus is getting the gossip about boys kissing. I mean, Sirius. <laughs> I mean, Sirius, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Sirius being like, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. Let's go! <laughs> Remus just being like, wait, wait for me. Yeah, what happened? <laughs> Don't leave me. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, that totally checks out. I, yeah. I can completely see that happening. <laughs> I have to say, I also love the series that you wrote uh, in this chapter. Well, I wrote some of it, to be fair. Yeah, no, I was like, <laughs> help me, I'm dying. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's really obvious where I step in mm-hmm. right into, because I'm like, ah, little buddy. <laughs> little buddy. <laughs> little write, dude. You, write your dialogue right now. Um... But yeah, it's mm. funny how, how stuck you got on this chapter, actually. Oh, yeah, it like was brutal for me. I'm not sure if I was still like recovering from trauma of like you being sick and I just like couldn't get into it. <laughs> My anxiety was too high. <laughs> I don't know if that's what, know it what it is. I what it was. But I think when you write scenes like that, because this has happened before, mm. well, rarely, maybe once or twice before. Mm. I think once, maybe. Well, once really significantly, but it has like happened here and there. Where if you write the scene badly the first time, mm. I say badly, but I mean like with the panic sweating mm-hmm. the first time, that scene never recovers. Mm. It never improves. Yeah. It's almost like as if you have this like... Yeah, no, I can't get away from it. Yeah, it's real yeah. bad. I have to like trash it several times. Yeah, but it took me forever to mm. get you to like get cut, there. Yeah, <laughs> cut out the parts that were so bad. Just because I had to wait for the panic sweating to subside. God. It was a completely different chapter when I started. No, and it and it was so weird. Mm-hmm. It was like, because mm-hmm. to be fair, we write weird shit all the time. Yeah, I mean, like seriously. I wrote Baudelaire and Ishtar. I have no right to be calling anything anyone else writes weird. But like, the body language was so off. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like the my, dialogue my, was it's off. It's like my understanding of how humans engage with each other when I'm in a state of, like, high stress is completely non-existent. Like, I have no idea what humans do it, in space with yeah. each other. <laughs> it it literally is like reading nails on a chalkboard yeah. noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me... It's it, like a specific skill that I have. <laughs> no, but, but anytime you read it, you're like, what's wrong with it? I'll just post it like this. And I'm reading it like, please, my eyes are bleeding. Like, I can't... <laughs> I can't it's handle this. because I have to wait for the panic to stop. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying you're wrong. I don't even know if anyone else reading it would think it was so bad, but like... I Probably, lo- though. Like, very much so. Because once, once, I I, once I get out of that headspace, though, when I read it, I'm like, oh yeah, no, this is really fucking weird. But while I'm in it, I'm in it. <laughs> At one point, you had Remus holding the owl like a baby. You used that word, like a baby. Yeah. And I was like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. You cannot do that. Who would do that? I mean, I do that to the dog all the time. I don't know it's not a bird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean. He was, no, you said, like, yeah. coo at it yeah. like a baby. And I was I like. I left that in there. <laughs> that is horrendous. The image that that conjures is like you've never met an owl or a person I've or a baby. I've definitely met an owl and I've definitely cooed at it. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Did you cuddle the owl? Like yes. Cradle, cradling it? No, they wouldn't let me, but I would have. No, no. The owl would not have let you. <laughs> like, that just sounds like talons to oh the face. <laughs> 
Okay, I'll let readers weigh in on this. Would you... I don't know. I've definitely seen videos of people. Have you never seen those, like, rescue videos of owls wrapped in blankets? No, because I feel like I'd want to claw my eyes out. Oh, they're I, so cute. No, I, I can't. I can't handle this. I can't believe you left that in there. Ugh. You proofread it. You didn't say anything. No, no, I deleted it, like, four separate times. No. Yeah, I even I didn't comment it on back it. in. Oh, no, then it's gone. No, it's there. I read it. I remember reading it. I've literally commented on it and deleted that. Oh, I think only times. part of it's there then. Okay, it's fine. Doesn't matter. Whatever way it is now, it's fine. It's all over. It's all over. It's on the internet. <sighs> yeah, it makes me stressed just thinking about it. Mm. <laughs> there are just certain things. Like, what was the other thing that was so weird in the beginning? Do you remember? No, I don't remember because I was in a state of high panic writing it. There were so many things where I was just like, what is happening? Who are these characters? Who wrote this? David Gudgeon. <laughs> if you had written David... No, see, the other thing is, too, when you write a good scene, mm-hmm. and you write like you normally write, mm-hmm. I read it, and I'm like, well, this is fucking hilarious and yeah. beautiful, and like you just did it mm. perfectly, and you made small jokes about David Gudgeon, which are very clever, and I'm mm. very impressed with. <laughs> but, like, No. <laughs> Other times it's like, Mm-mm. I I I can't. No, it's such a struggle. And yeah, and I don't think you've struggled like that ever. in a long time. No, no, I remember struggling like that during Blood Magic. Yes, but it wasn't as long as this. No, time. this was brutal. This yeah. was like literally so brutal. It was bad. Yeah, it took me so long. But you totally got over it and wrote an amazing chapter afterwards, which I had to do because I had to write mini prompts. Like unrelated to the chapter, I wrote. Remember, yes. I wrote a bunch of like this mini was, like, scenes. My homework. Too. Yeah, I know you gave me homework, and I was like, I need more homework. Help me. Me and your therapist yeah. both like you, <laughs> yeah, you and my therapist are like giving me homework so I can get over my weird anxiety writing block. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I had to like tell you to write completely different scenes when they're different ages yeah. from different timelines. I know, I had to like work back, like I wrote something in seventh year and like worked back through yeah. the years oh my to God. get back The stuff you wrote though was so good. I hope we use that. Yeah, I saved them so hopefully we can bring them back. No, definitely. Definitely. It's kind of a neat writing trick though. Mm. Like if people out there are struggling with writer's block, mm. think about um, a different scene, a different time, a different place yeah. but your same characters. Yeah. And, and give what? yourself like a short word limit of like what exactly do you want yeah, to see like them 300 experience? Words. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, what do you really want to write? Yeah, yeah. What scene do you have stuck in your head that you can't like get, get over, out, yeah. but doesn't fit with what you're currently working yeah. on? Write it somewhere else. Yeah, totally. Because that was it too. Because I had like quite a few ideas in this chapter that I really wanted to use, but I realized they weren't appropriate for this chapter. So like I had to mm. take them out and save them and put them somewhere else. Yeah, that was another important thing mm. too. It was like cutting stuff down. Yeah. Which I think, like, a lot of times, you know, I know I sometimes feel, like, afraid to do that because I'm like, oh, but I really love this concept and, like, I'm afraid if I take this, it out, I, it'll, I'll lose it, you know? Yeah, but this fic is so long. Yeah, exactly. I, was, like, I think oh, that's one of the fine. problems with writing a fic this long, too, is, like, we have so many ideas of yeah. what's coming. Mm-hmm. And every time we write a chapter, it's like you can't throw everything into that one chapter. Yeah. I, I yeah. definitely struggle with that, yeah. too. like pacing things. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. But you, struggle. you did excellently. Now Thank it's you. hilarious and lovely and I great. Tried. And you got over Remus like doing his small gay bisexual <laughs> query something. Queer panic, yeah. Yeah. 
really being startled by Marlene with short hair, <laughs> which just adds to his layer of confusion. Like, wait a fucking second. <laughs> no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. I'm fine. It's like I'm what fine. I imagined, like, my experience would have been if I hadn't had the vocabulary when I did. Like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> Why are these feelings existing? Versus me writing Sirius's version of attraction is just low-key competition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's just low-key competition. doesn't matter who it is yeah. or who it's about. Yeah. It's just, it's a, comp- it's a competition. Yeah. And he's going to win. And he's going to win. Yeah. No matter what. <laughs> can't wait to write more of that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I can't, actually, I can't say anything because this going to be a huge spoiler, but... Okay, Marlene. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> just say the... The Gryffindor house gets real incestuous. <laughs> Every year. Every this is year. not a remiss yeah, and serious yeah. no, problem. This, is, just this, like, is, this just... is a boarding school problem. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, hands down. <laughs> there are like eight kids in every year. All yeah. right, then. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Things are going to get weird. seven years together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what a drama. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Okay, are we yeah, done for discussion? I think we're done, yeah. Okay. We will see you next time Mm. when I read the chapter I haven't written yet. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.